0: Good afternoon. Welcome to our Banner Lecture Series. As always, thank you so much for your generous support. We could not do this without you. Uh, We're glad to see you here on this beautiful fall-light day. And uh, hello to all of our virtual uh, viewers on Facebook and YouTube. A couple of reminders. Uh, The book signing after the lecture will be directly outside in the lobby. Uh, our galleries are open, uh, so if you haven't had a chance to see our latest exhibitions, uh, please do that. And a few program notes of uh, upcoming events. Uh, next Thursday, uh, on September 9th at 7.30, we'll be having a concert, uh, Violins of Hope concert, which uh, is in partnership with the Richmond Symphony, uh, and that will be at the Richmond's Cathedral of the Sacred Heart. This is a partnership that we're doing with uh, the Black History Museum and Cultural Center of Virginia, uh, as well as the uh, Virginia Holocaust Museum. So there are seven violins uh, on display at each of the three institutions. and. Uh, uh, I hope you'll have a chance to see them if you haven't already. Uh, upstairs in the gallery, it's, it's really a stunning display. So that that concert will be uh, at 7.30 p.m., as I mentioned before, at the Cathedral of the Sacred Heart. Um, on Friday, next Friday, uh, September 10th at noon, uh, we'll have the next uh, installment of our Curator Conversations program. Uh, this is a virtual program. Uh, on Virginia's brewed past, uh, our own uh, curator Paige Newman will be exploring Virginia's beer history through recipes, advertisements, photographs of local watering holes, and other beer-related artifacts in our collection. Uh, also, a reminder that our Member Mondays at Virginia House is back up and running, uh, so mark your calendar both for September 13th and the 20th. Uh, that starts at 5:30 p.m. Uh, You can bring your own refreshments, or you can enjoy curated refreshments from local merchants. And finally, our next Banner Lecture is uh, on Wednesday, September 15th at noon, uh, when historian and author David Stewart will be with us talking about his book, George Washington, The Making of a Leader. But today we're very Pleased to have with us uh, Dr. Robert Watson, uh, who is a distinguished professor of American history at Lynn University in Boca Raton. Uh, he is a frequent uh, media commentator. He's been interviewed by news outlets around the world, including CNN, MSNBC, USA Today, The New York Times, NPR, and the BBC. He's an award winning author who has published more than 40 books including the president's wives, the official, uh, the office of the first lady in U.S. politics, the ghost ship of Brooklyn, an an untold story of the American Revolution, and George Washington's final battle, the epic struggle to build a capital city and a nation. But today he'll be here speaking about his latest book, uh, which has uh, great local interest for us, of course, uh, Escape, the Story of the Confederacy's infamous Libby Prison and the Civil War's largest jailbreak. Located here in Richmond, Libby Prison housed Union officers, high-profile opponents of the Confederacy and political prisoners. Escape captures the harsh conditions of Libby and the story behind the prison break called the most remarkable in American history. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Robert Watson. All right, thank you for that kind
1: introduction and thanks for coming out, everyone. First off, I love your city. Uh, I get to Richmond before the pandemic about every year uh, to do research and tour. I went to college at Virginia Tech, so on one side of you, and I taught at Georgetown on the other side. So uh, spent a lot of time here. I've had the pleasure of lecturing here in the past, doing research here. Uh, And this museum is one of my favorites. It's a real treasure, a real resource. So uh, thank you for supporting the museum. Uh, The museum uh, has a couple of exhibits from the Libby Prison that we're going to talk about today. There's a couple items out there on exhibit, so you'll have to check it out after the uh, lecture. And also, let me encourage you to come on September 15th for David Stort's lecture. David and I are friends. He and I have done programs together in the past. He's an outstanding George Washington scholar and uh, great writer, and a f- uh, even better storyteller. So you're in for a treat for that one. So the story I'm here to share, by the way, the book just came out a week ago. So it still has the new car smell. Um, and this is my first lecture about it. So I'm so excited to tell you about my new baby. Uh, this is number 46. Um, so I have a lot of kids. But um, So it's a story about one of the most wretched and infamous prisons in American history. Uh, as you heard in the introduction, it's a story about the largest jailbreak of the Civil War and one of the largest in history. It's also a a cruel story about a bizarre propaganda scheme that was cooked up by Confederate leaders, uh, and a whole book takes place right here uh, in Richmond. Uh, Libby Prison was down by the canal in the James River on Tobacco Row. Uh, The property is now where the Virginia Holocaust Museum sits, which I had called the Holocaust Museum folks. I know some folks on the board there and Told them that uh, they're, they're, what they're sitting on top of is, is hollow, ha, you know, hallowed ground. Um, so I think that's kind of poetic and fitting in a, in a roundabout way. So, um, with that, um, let's get into this. And I should say my favorite part of these programs is always the Q and A. So have at me anything you want to talk about during the Q and A. So the main character in the prison, his name was Thomas E. Rose. Now, obviously, this isn't him. Um, But there are no photographs of him escaping through the tunnel underneath the prison. But uh, I found a dozen sets of diaries or letters from prisoners in Libby who describe the tunnel in great detail. And this is about the closest picture. Uh, When I went online and just looked at hundreds of pictures of tunnels, this is about the closest one to the description. So Thomas Rose is an interesting fellow. uh, Born uh, near where I was in eastern Pennsylvania, not far from Philadelphia, in Quaker country. So Thomas Rose, like many folks in that part of the country, had very progressive views for the time and was a staunch abolitionist. Uh, He became a schoolteacher. He was a bit adventurous, and a schoolteacher's job wasn't quite uh, uh, glamorous or adventurous enough for him. So he moved to Pittsburgh, the western part of the state, which back then was pretty much the wild, wild west, the hinterlands, Uh, and he became a principal. Uh, in Pittsburgh. As soon as the war broke out, he enlisted. Now, there's two things that everybody said about Thomas Rose. One, they described his size. He was physically a very big man. Um, I think half the letters I read about him that use the word burly. So a big burly guy with a big beard, uh, very muscular, very powerful. The second thing everybody said was he was quiet. Uh, He was a man who led with his actions, not with his words. Um, He was rose up quickly during the civil war to the rank of Colonel. Uh, there are so many stories about him that um, if we didn't have multiple accounts from his men, I would think they would be those fish tails. When the guy says the fish was this big and it was actually, you know, um, but Rose literally was one of those officers who led from the front always at the battle of Chickamauga, which was uh, Northern Georgia, Georgia by the Tennessee border uh, mid September, 1863, this would be one of the largest, at the time, conflicts in what was known as the Western Theater. That was, it was west of Virginia and Maryland. Um, But um, uh, it was a a bloody, massive, costly defeat for the Union, uh, at the time, uh, second only to Gettysburg in terms of casualty counts, Uh, and the Union was hit bad. Over 4,000 Union soldiers were captured, including Colonel Rose. Uh, the South, the Confederacy, was punching a hole in Union lines. So Rose grabs a few men and runs to fill the, the line. And of course, Rose is out front barking orders when his line is overrun and he's captured. He's taken by train to Richmond. Libby Prison here in Richmond was the central receiving grounds for all prisoners of war of the Confederacy during the first four years of the war. So everybody came here. So he's being brought to Richmond. And as you heard in the introduction, Libby was for high-ranking officers. Bell Island, which was also one of the most wretched prisons, which was on the little island out in the river, that was for enlisted men. And the death toll in both places. It's second pretty much only to Andersonville, if anybody's heard of Andersonville Prison, which we'll talk about in a moment. But um, Rose wants to escape. He's on an open train, and the train slows down. It's raining, so he jumps off the train. He judges his landing wrong and breaks his ankle. He runs on a broken ankle. And for hours, he eludes the Confederates who pour off the train to find him. And many of them bring horses. Um, hours later, he's captured. He is beaten savagely, uh, beaten savagely, butts of guns in the face and over the back and head. Uh, he ends up regaining consciousness in Richmond, uh, where he and the prisoners are paraded from the train depot to Libby. Uh, we have... Countless accounts of the soldiers being paraded through the streets, and Rose wrote about it too. Uh, Really a a disturbing scene. People lined the roads, throwing garbage, uh, spitting on the prisoners. Uh, Rose recalled old women running up, demanding that the guards shoot them on the spot, demanding that they hang them, people trying to grab and kill the prisoner. The violence, uh, the sheer inhumanity, And Rose catches the attention of all the other prisoners, the 4,000 prisoners that day, because they're all cowering, they're screaming, they thought they were going to die. They said Rose walked straight forward with garbage and spit. He didn't even see, it's like he didn't see it. They thought he was in a trance. He was memorizing every street. He was counting the number of steps, looking where lanterns were. He was already planning his escape. Because he's such a hero, when he checked in at Libby, he is beaten again savagely and robbed everything he has. Um, so Rose would dig a tunnel. And just as a starting point to give you a sense, um, in February of 1864, in the bitter cold, Rose finds himself well over 50 feet deep in this tunnel. The tunnel's only wide enough for his shoulders. He couldn't turn around and grab his feet, uh, he had trouble moving in it. Plus, he was a big guy. Um, He's in the tunnel, and he was so deep in the tunnel that his friend, Andrew Hamilton, it was Rose and Hamilton who dug the tunnel, stands at the entrance with a fan, and he has to fan air in that he stole. He stole a big brimmed hat and put wood in to make it rigid. He has to fan air in, otherwise Rose would faint. All of a sudden, the fanning of the air stops. The candle flickers and goes out. Rose feels himself going into unconsciousness. They tied an ankle around his a rope around his ankle from a rope they stole that led outside. And the key is you're supposed to jerk your leg when you need to be pulled out. Rose is jerking his leg and no one's pulling him out. As he's falling into unconsciousness, he's trying to figure out why his friends didn't rescue him. The Confederate guards burst into the basement, the cellar, the dungeon of the prison. There had been an attempted escape, so they burst in. There were four other men in the prison, in the prison dungeon with Rose that day. They all had to die for cover. The men that are undercover are worried. What if Rose yells out? What if he comes walking out of the tunnel? The guards had orders to shoot people on spot, on the spot. So the men are hiding, worried that Rose will come out. The good news was the cellar was so foul, the sewer system ran through the, the dungeon. So it was open sewage. The basement was nicknamed Rat Hell. Thousands of rats. In fact, the men that were hiding, one jumped in a pile of straw, described rats running all over him, but he couldn't squeal out. Um, Finally, uh, the men, uh, the the guards leave, and the men drag Rose out of the the hole. He's unconscious. He comes to, and he has good news. Right before he went unconscious, with the little pick that he stole, he went upward, and he broke ground. He broke ground. So he told the men, we're going to get a good night's sleep. The guards know something's up, let's give it another day. In two days, February 9th, 1864, we're gonna escape. So this is where our story begins. And this is as close to the picture as I could get a sense. Um, So people love prison escape books and movies, don't we everyone? I'm guessing all of you have seen all these movies or read all these books. Uh, The Count of Monte Cristo is my personal favorite uh, of this genre. But uh, there's been some notorious prison escapes in history. And it's almost like a car wreck or a shipwreck. And I've written about two books about uh, sunken ships. Um, We have this morbid, eternal fascination with this stuff, don't we? With prison breaks. But there's nothing quite like a prison break when soldiers are escaping and when the prison is said to be inescapable. We have all those ingredients with Libby right here in Richmond. Anybody heard of Father Gerard and the Tower of London escape? In the 1590s. Um, so this is the Elizabethan era. And um, there was, of course, hostility between Protestants and Catholics, as as you all know. And um, uh, Britain was turning Protestant, and he was a Catholic priest. So he was an outspoken Catholic priest who was very political. So he was basically on Elizabeth's most wanted list. Uh, they finally capture him, and they torture him for eight years in the Tower of London. They break his hands repeatedly. Uh, They beat him unconscious. Uh, What happens is he is so charismatic that the the prison guards love him. So he talks them into getting word out. His friends string a rope from the tower out across the water, and he talks the guards into escaping with them. He says, One, after I escape, they're going to assume you were complicit. Two, why are you working in this foul place? Come with me. So they escape. Uh, And he lives a long life. Uh, Napoleon, of course, has escaped from Elba uh, after he's captured. He's on the island of Elba off the coast of Italy. And uh, only Napoleon would negotiate for where he would be imprisoned. And he wants an island, and they make him emperor of the island. What does he do? He organizes the people of the island to build infrastructure and a port. He doesn't build ships. He trains a Navy. And one night, he has them make all the ships to look like, and they steal British flags. They disguise the ships as British ships, and he sails with his navy off and returns to power. For 100 days before his Waterloo, this is where we get the 100-day measure for presidents and other leaders, because Napoleon was in power for 100 days. John Dillinger, you're looking at him on the left, the most wanted man, of course, a thug, a a mass murderer. Dillinger escaped from an inescapable prison in, in, in Indiana by carving a pistol and using black shoe polish, held up a guard. Um, Now, if you're the most wanted man in the country and you escape from an inescapable prison, you go underground. Dillinger goes on a murder spree all the way across the country, leaving a wake of bodies behind him. The FBI catches him in in Arizona and kills him. Uh, Stalag Luft III, uh, this is the movie The Great Escape. Anybody? Uh, Okay which is about one of the largest prison breaks with a tunnel in history. Of course, not nearly as large as the, as the one we're gonna talk about. This is from a Nazi prison. Uh, a British officer, Roger Bush now, digs three tunnels and 70 uh, some men escaped, 76 I believe it was. Tragically, all but three are recaptured by the Nazis. They are tortured and killed. Uh, so only three escaped. Uh, and of course, escape from Alcatraz, right? Everybody's been Alcatraz or seen the Clint Eastwood movie, the Anglin brothers and Frank Morris escape. And to make it all the better, the bodies were never found. So we just don't know. Um, At any rate, so the Civil War, real quickly about prisoners, just to give you some sense. I know since you're all from Richmond, you probably know more about the Civil War than most any other city, right? Um, 620,000 deaths. That's 2% of the population. What's that today? Something like 6.7 million people. Could you imagine? It's incomprehensible. Um, uh, over 50,000 casualties just at Gettysburg, right near where I grew up. Uh, in three days, everybody. Uh, these numbers are hard to fathom. You know, we're still mourning just about 3,000 people lost from 9-11 uh, on the 20th anniversary. Imagine over 50,000 in three days. Um, Alabama, North Carolina, your own Virginia. Virginia. Illinois, New York, Ohio, and my native Pennsylvania. Each state buried over 30,000 of its sons, Uh, just to give you some sense. And I put that number up there because with the Civil War, every family, every town was impacted directly uh, by the Civil War. Over 30,000, quote unquote, colored troops perished. Uh, If anybody's seen the movie Glory, about the Massachusetts 54th, one of my nerdy pastimes is fact-checking movies. So never go to a movie with me i ruined the entire movie, Um, but it's it's reasonably accurate. Um, uh, More soldiers died from disease than died in combat. And just for purposes, you'll look at my graph on the bottom. Uh, The Civil War casualties at the top. In other words, more people died in the Civil War than World War One and World War Two put together. More people died in the Civil War than all the wars in the 17 and 1800s that America fought put together. More people died in prisons during the Civil War than any 1700-1800 war that America fought. You could put 200 years of wars together and more people died just in prisons in the Civil War, to give you a sense. Uh, I say this with all due respect. Um, I've written a book on the Holocaust and I often lead Jewish heritage and Holocaust history tours across Europe. So I say this with proper reverence and respect. But some of the stories from Bell Island, Andersonville and Libby reminded me of the Holocaust. This is one of the Union prisoners uh, from Andersonville, uh, to give you some sense. They literally found skeletons. Um, uh, Over 400,000 soldiers were imprisoned during the Civil War, just during the Civil War. Over 56,000 died in prisons, uh, including thousands at Belle Isle and at Libby right here in Richmond. Uh, The death toll in the prisons alone was larger than the Vietnam War. Wow. Um, So why the shockingly high numbers? Uh, On one hand, both sides thought the Civil War was going to be very brief. Some Confederate newspapers said winning the war is only a matter of us putting our men in uniform and marching north. Even Lincoln thought it would be over quickly. Uh, Prominent uh, northern generals said it would last 30 days. They were putting Union soldiers in conscription for just three months, 90 days, because they knew it would be over quickly. Well, Bull Run, Manassas, right, would suggest otherwise. And it turned out to be a long and bloody affair. Secondly, the, the, the numbers of prisoners that died in the South was, was higher than in the North, and the South it's believed the Confederacy underreported the numbers. So I'm, I'm going to use official numbers, but a lot of historians believe they were grotesquely higher uh, than that. Uh, the South was notorious for underreporting and then over exaggerating their victories, um, as is the case with warfare throughout history. Um, I remember. In the beginning, well, several years ago, I was going to say the beginning of my career, but it's now 30 plus years, uh, even though I'm only 28. Um, But um, I was writing a book on the War of 1812, and you're allowed to laugh. Who the hell would write a book on the War of 1812, right? Um, But uh, I did so because there are some battles in the war. We just don't know the outcome. You know, think about a war in 18, a battle in 1813 in the Canadian wilderness, Yeah, where half the soldiers get lost or die or or, or illiterate. So we don't have reliable accounts. And I remember being all excited because in London, I found one of the British general's reports. And he said something to the effect that it was a great and glorious battle. We killed 500 Americans and only lost 50 men. So I was so excited to finally have uncovered this. And I couldn't wait to put it in my book. A couple of months later, I found the American general's report in the uh, National Archives. Guess what he said? It was a great and glorious victory. We killed 500 British and only lost 50 men. They both said the same thing. Who was telling the truth? I don't think either of them were. Um, so, it, you know, if you're a general on the battlefield, why write a letter back to Lee or Grant saying you screwed up and lost the battle? No, you say I was brilliant and we won. And it, it, who's going to ta- whose word are they going to take, yours or one of your the privates who's 19 years old and marginally literate? So there's a lot of exaggeration throughout history. But the South ran out of food. Richmond was in a starvation mode during much of the war. Civilians were starving. The military, the Confederate Army was starving. So if you're starving, are you going to prioritize feeding prisoners? No. The South ran out of food, clothing, medicine. So the prisoners got nothing. There are multiple accounts of of Confederate soldiers darn near eager to surrender to the North because they got food, they got a blanket and they got medical attention uh, because the South was literally in a starvation uh, mode. Um, Also, truth be told, despite the fact that we were brothers, brothers picking up arms against brothers, there were animosities and the one sad reality of humanity and human condition is every culture, every country, every period in history has shown the worst of humanity towards prisoners of war. Every war in history. And so it was here where the guards were Southern civilians just mercilessly beat the union soldiers here and tortured them in all sorts of cruel ways, which I'll discuss in a moment. So that's Andersonville photo at the top, over 13,000 men died in less than one year in Andersonville. It was horrifically overcrowded. It wasn't a prison. It was a stockade like for cows. They just built a, a, a wooden, there's a replica of it at the bottom in, in Georgia. So the men were exposed to the heat and humidity, the rain, the snow, the the cold, whatever the inclement conditions were. It was so bad that there was a small creek that ran through Andersonville. At one point, there was a flood after torrential downpours. The creek overflowed and lots of prisoners drowned because they were so weak, skin and bones, they couldn't stand up and they they were underwater. Uh, So they were that bad that they couldn't even stand up. Uh, This is Libby. There she is. This is an early picture of her. This would be circa 1862. Um, uh, And she's right there behind her in the far right corner. You can see the Kanawha Canal, if I'm pronouncing your canal correctly, right by the James River. The uh, tents were for the guards. So uh, that's the legendary, infamous uh, Libby Prison. And right smack in the middle of the picture is a horizontal white sign. That's where the name Libby comes from. It was known as Confederate Military Prison. So someone wasn't very creative when they named it. It was also uh, known as the Castle of Despair, uh, Rad Hell, and all sorts of of cruel names. The Bastille of the Confederacy was what uh, Confederate generals referred to it as. It was inescapable, so they thought. Uh, Here's the other side of it from your canal. Um, And the reason it was there, they built it right on Tobacco Row, Uh, the construction started in 1845 to 52. I put it on your screen, John Enders. He wanted to build three warehouses for tobacco. Richmond, as you know, with the James River feeding into the Chesapeake, Potomac, and thus the Atlantic, uh, it was uh, the entire south gateway to the planet uh, for tobacco and agricultural exchange, making Richmond one of the most prosperous towns. Of course, the James River being one of the most important rivers at the time. So they built those right there on Tobacco Row, um, uh, right across the street from what is now, as I said, the Holocaust Museum. And it was a, um, uh, used for tobacco. Luther and George Libby. Uh, Libby was picked as a Confederate prison and a high-ranking prison for the highest-value prisoners. Generals, they captured a member of Congress. And those, this is where the high-value prisoners went because it was said to be cursed or haunted. And the answer is, of course, right? If you have a ghost tour in Virginia, I hope they take you down there because it was said to be cursed. And why? John Enders, when he's finishing in 1852, his prison, he was on the roof on the ladder. It broke and he fell four stories to his death. Uh, prison, the prison went to his son-in-law who died right, right away from a mysterious illness. It then went to his daughter. She died of a mysterious illness. Who went to the other daughter ownership. She died of, a, you know, it was cursed. The family didn't want it, believing it was haunted, so they sold it to Libby, who was from Maine. And he was a chandler. A chandler is someone that supplies ships. So all the ships there, he made a lot of money, so it was a a chandlery. Whoops. In March of 1862, uh, the South needed more space for prisoners, so they seized the warehouses and turned it into a, uh, a prison. This is one of the rooms, a picture of actually one of the rooms. Uh, contained eight large rooms, about 105 feet by 45 feet, with a low ceiling. Uh, no beds, no room for conditions. Uh, they were open windows, so the heat, the cold, and of course, the sewage system in the dungeon rats filled the, the building. Um, when someone was checked into Libby, if you were an officer, you were beaten savagely and then robbed of everything you had. So men did not have blankets, they did not have bedding. They did not have those that didn't lose their boots. People used their boots for their pillow. It was so crowded with over a thousand men, maybe wedged into these rooms that they organized the sleeping system. Because if not, you'd be on top of one another. Entire rows, a hundred feet long. They would spoon like newlyweds. Um, and every hour, because they were skin and bones on this hard floor, their bodies ached. Every hour, the commanding officer would say, attention and spoon left. And everybody would roll over. And then their next hour, spoon right. Uh, it kept them warm in the winter. They could lie down without someone on top of them and not, you know, harm their sides. Just like a um, in the Holocaust, you know, you have all these concentration camps that have work will set you free and all sorts of ironic and cruel sayings. Uh, Libby had a saying on the wall from Dante's Inferno, all hope abandoned ye who enter here. Um One of the worst parts of the prison were the wardens. The guy on the lower left is a big guy with a beard. It's uh, Dick Turner. He was the deputy warden. The little guy on the right is Thomas Turner, the warden. No relation, just the same last name. Uh, They were both. There's quotes. You can read them on your own from the soldiers. These men were cruel and wicked. Dick Turner uh, put the fear of God in men because he was a big physical man who just liked to beat people up. He was a big bully. Uh, Thomas Turner put more fear in the men, even though he was a really small, petite, weak fellow. He had a a chip on his shoulder, one might say. And uh, as he would walk through the prison, he would tell one of his officers to just arbitrarily run a sword through somebody. Um, If he was bored, he would torture you for entertainment. Um, He put um, he had slaves dig a a pit underneath the uh, prison and he loaded it with explosives so he threatened to blow the prison up on a regular basis. Um, if he was in a bad mood, he'd tell the prisoners, no food today or tomorrow. Um, he arbitrarily locked people up in the dungeon uh, for days on end without food or water, usually dragged the corpse out. Um, they had uh, it was called the dead room, where they piled up all the bodies. And they would leave them there for a while. One, they were short-handed, But two, it was part of the propaganda to instill fear in the other prisoners. Um, and one day he was cursing that one of the men was, uh, not following his orders. One of the prisoners, he starts kicking the man in the head yelling, you're going to, I'm going to throw your body, you know, on the heap with the dead at the dead house. Finally, he realized the man he was kicking was dead. Um, prisoners, uh, took delight uh, in the, the harsh winter months of 1864 that, um, they dragged out one of the prisoners they thought was dead. They threw him in the in a dead house in the pile. And the man got up and walked out of the prison the next day. So he was so weak, they thought he was dead. Uh, and of course, the prisoners would yell and tease Turner about it. And then he would have them beaten. And then they would yell and tease him more. He'd have them beaten again. And it, it continues. This is the prison downstairs. Um, this is where the dungeon, uh, this is where the escape comes from in these, these rooms. The good news for the men that dug the tunnel in February of 1864 out of the prison was by... February of 64, the sewage system was so backed up, so many rats, so foul, that they stopped even putting people in the dungeons, and the guards just refused to go there. It was so foul. Uh, Propaganda and the Libby Zoo. Uh, This might be, I think, one of the more important things in the book or something that I think most impacted me. Uh, From Jeff Davis down to General Winder, who was in charge of all prisons in the South, who was based out of Richmond, to Turner, It came up with a scheme to use Libby prison for propaganda. Propaganda to instill the fear in northern soldiers. They did not try to hide the inhumanity and torture that came out of Libby. No, they bragged about it. The argument was this will deter Union soldiers from picking up arms. Short story, it had the opposite effect. As word got out about what they were doing there, it became almost like an 1860s version of Remember the Alamo. So it had the opposite effect. The propaganda was also to inspire fellow Confederates and Southerners who were going without food, medicine, and were losing the war. At one point, it was obvious the war was going to end. It was just a matter of attrition and logistics. The North had the advantage of the three M's, more men, money, and manufacturing. So if the South didn't win this quickly, it was inevitably going to go to the Union Union. Uh, Even though the South had better generals and so forth and so on. Um, So to to inspire fellow Southerners, they turned Libby into a human zoo. So you could tour Libby prison like a zoo and they'd walk you through and narrate it. Uh, Each room was named for a battle. There was the Chickamauga room, uh, rooms named for famous generals and so forth. And uh, people would come in and tort, and they would point out, there on the floor, that's the allegedly great Union general so-and-so, who's now 90 pounds of skin and bone lying in his own feces, and everybody would throw garbage on him and laugh and applaud, then they go to the next person. So in addition to the humiliation of being put in a prison, you had to deal with the zoo, and that you were behind a cage uh, for people to laugh at, mock, and throw things on. So uh, this is yet... One of the things that inspires Rose, Hamilton, and others to dig the tunnel out. Um, Now, the prisoners, you can notice from this picture of the prison, the bottom half is now white. When there was an attempted escape at night, they decided wisely to paint the bottom of the prison white so at night you could see the silhouette of a prisoner on it. So the first picture would be from 62. This would be post-63. The men, in order to cope with the way of living, they came up with – they named it for uh, Aristotle's uh, Lyceum. Only there were so many lice, they called it the lyceum C um uh, They said it was better than Harvard. Uh, it probably was. There were so many brilliant people in there. They had language classes. You could take classes in Prussian, German, Spanish, Italian, French. Um, there were classes in theology, uh, literature. Uh, the men put on holiday musicals and plays. There were enough gifted singers, they'd have to do it really quietly. Otherwise, Turner would come up and beat everyone. Um, They had comedy. They even published, the Libby Chronicle, a newsletter with paper they stole. They published a newsletter with poetry and current events. And so some really gifted officers um, uh, who came up with all this wonderful stuff. They would prank the guards constantly. What they would do is when the guards would line everybody up for the twice a day roll call, Someone, if you had a hat, would, like, put a hat on your fingers and hold it next to you, and they'd count two people. And then what men would do is duck down and run over here. So Erastus Ross, who did the clerk who did the count, uh, he would always overcount, and then, and then they'd have to do it again. Even though the prisoners had to stand in line longer, they wanted to prank everybody. The other thing they would do is when they were counting, they would say 722, 723, and all the soldiers would start yelling 715, 683, 820, And then they would forget where they were and then curse enough to start to count over again. So um, it was all ways of pranking. Usually when they do that, they would be beaten summarily and threatened with death, but they would continue to do it. They would also steal whatever they could and collect food that was inedible or an old boot. And when the guards would pass by under the window, the men would just, a maelstrom of stuff would be thrown on them. And then the the prisoners would run. The guards would come upstairs and drag a couple of people to the dungeon or stab somebody or beat someone, but it was worth it uh, to do that. That kept the morale up. Um, In winter of 64, things change. A number of things change. That's Nathan Bedford Forrest. You probably have heard of that name. After the war, he was one of the founders of the KKK. Um, He also was the person behind the Fort Pillow Massacre in Tennessee. Forrest and some other Confederate officers announced, we're no longer taking prisoners. We'll just kill everybody. And Forrest was mostly perturbed because colored, quote unquote, soldiers were in uniform. So he killed the black soldiers, the white officers, any medics, even the women, children and people in town. He was just bloodthirsty. Uh, So there was no more prisoners coming in. The South then stopped prisoner exchanges. So if you were in Libby, you were either going to die or you had to hope to live until the war ended, which didn't seem feasible. The amount of food they were given per day was not enough to keep you alive. So even if you ate and drank every day, it was a slow death. So um, no more prisoner exchanges. The South ran out of food and medicine. So Turner announced they were no longer going to feed the prisoners. It was bitterly cold. Uh, even spooning without clothing or blankets, the men were freezing to death, and they, they would drag out frozen corpses each morning. Uh, so that's what prompted the uh, the escape plans in the winter of 63-64. Rose and Hamilton. Uh, Rose, as I said, was from Pennsylvania, a big burly fellow. Hamilton was a really dashing, handsome, young, uh, mounted cavalry officer from Kentucky. Now, a lot of Kentucky was slave-owning and pro-South. Uh, The Confederates came into Hamilton's town, and instead of recruiting people, they raped and misbehaved. And Hamilton was so livid that he joined the North. Um, uh, General John Hunt Morgan, um, one of the most famous uh, Confederate raiders in Ohio, Hamilton was among the men that captured the legendary General Morgan. So Hamilton was a young, dashing, gifted guy, very resourceful. What happens is in that winter of 63 into 64, December, January, February, um, it's so bitter cold that Colonel Rose, one night in a rainstorm with lightning, he sneaks over to the barred window to see if he could tear the bars off the window or move it or dig around it to try to escape. There was scaffolding outside the prison. They were doing construction. Maybe he could get to it. He's standing there at the window. A lightning bolt illuminates it, and there's a face right next to his. It's Hamilton. Both men jump, scared the hell out of one another. Then they said why they were there, and then they go back to bed. A couple of days later, Rose says maybe he was watching out the window as all the rats coming in and out of the sewage. He realizes the sewage goes right into the southeast corner of the prison. So he goes down and gets access to the to the, to the the dungeon. And he's down in the dungeon. It's pitch black. It's foul. He's stepping on rats. He's walking in open sewage. Um, And he walks over to the corner of it where the sewage system is, and he bumps into another person. It's Hamilton again. They both have the same ideas twice, lightning struck twice, so they shook hands and they agreed they were going to work together. These are the two men that largely dug the tunnel. The question was how to get to the prison. Obviously, Rose and Hamilton did not cover their tracks when they found a door they could break open because the next night they went down, the door was bolted. So Hamilton realizes in the kitchen there's a fireplace that's not used. In front of the fireplace are several large cauldrons where they cook the food. So they realized if they go there at night, the fireplace is right above where they need to go. So they they used with their literally with their fingers, uh, they would scrape away and then dislodge the uh, bricks. Each night before they went back upstairs, they had to put everything back in place. So they were digging down. The problem was they dug down the straight concrete. They stole a chisel and half of a jackknife. With that, they realized they're not going to dig through concrete. So they went like a letter Z, and then they dropped down in the the next room in in the basement. That's how they would get into the basement. Every night, they had to sneak down, take the bricks off, dig, and in the morning, come up and replace the bricks, which meant they weren't sleeping. But it was a race against death. So this is how Rose and Hamilton managed to do it. Uh, They had uh, several silent partners. Uh, These are the three main ones. Colonel Abel Strait was a big, burly Dutchman uh, from uh, New York. Uh, The Confederates made fun of him because he had an accent. His family were immigrants, so he was beaten for that. Um, He moved to Indiana and became a raider. Uh, He took men on, on donkeys and went through the Appalachians and disrupted supply chains and railways and so on. Strait was a very charismatic, very big guy. And because he was a raider, he was one of the most famous prisoners in Libby. Therefore, he was beaten more than anyone else. He was on the zoo tour, and he was put in solitary more than just about anyone else. There were two others, uh, Frederick Bartleson. Uh, He was a lawyer from Cincinnati who moved to Illinois. He was a great hero in the war, an an officer that led from the front. He had an arm blown off, um, lived through it, and instead of recuperating and being able to go back, he reenlists and continues to fight and is captured. He's in the prison. He inspires men with his poetry. He writes poetry to keep Rose and Hamilton going through this. And in my book, I reprint uh, one of his better poems. Um, so that's his role. He doesn't escape with them because he has one arm. He can't climb through the hole. Federico Cavada is Cuban. Um, he is beaten because he's an immigrant and they make fun of his accent. Uh, some things never change. Um Cavada was uh, moved to Philadelphia. He joined the union because he saw that the slavery and oppression was similar there than in Cuba with the Spanish government. He is an engineer. He is one of the architects of the balloon program. They get these giant hot air balloons. They'd float them above the battlefield using semaphore flags. He would tell everybody where the Confederates were. He would sketch the battlefield, come down and issue reports. At the Battle of Gettysburg in early July of 1863, his balloon comes down. The Confederates were waiting for it. They pour out of the woods and capture him. So he's in Libby. His role is Kavad is a gifted writer. He chronicles day by day everything that happened. So his story that survived was just a treasure trove for me to tell the story. Okay, so a couple quick examples, then we'll get to the escape and call it. Um, so they entered from the fireplace, as I told you. Uh, Unfortunately, at one point, Rose is deep into the sewage system. It collapses on him. He's underwater in in raw feces and sewage. Um, They drag him out of it. Not only did he almost die, but now he smells. So he's not going to be able to go upstairs. Uh, He spends the whole night rolling around in straw and dirt, trying to get the smell off him because they don't have water. Um, He goes upstairs. He smells foul. So he concocts a story that he, you know, Went to the bathroom one himself. Um, There were unexpected roll calls. That's uh, Ross there on the right, uh, who was the clerk who did the roll calls, and he kept screwing up the roll calls all the time. Turner starts ordering middle-of-the-night roll calls. How do the men get upstairs? At one point, Captain Isaac Johnston is downstairs digging for Rose and Hamilton. There's a roll call Johnston can't get upstairs. He can't come back the next day because now Ross is giving roll calls by name. They'll know something was up. So he has to live in the dungeon. He lives in pitch blackness with rats and feces. Uh, there's a big pile of straw. Its only purpose seemed to be a sleeping place for rats. He's He sleeps in the pile of straw. One day, the Confederate guards came in when Johnston was in the basement, and he dives into the pile of straw. His nose is tickling. He feels a giant sneeze coming. The guards are walking around. He's trying to hold it. He makes a sound. The guards start poking bayonets in the pile of straw. It's going all around him. It doesn't hit him. A rat is crawling over him. He keeps his mouth shut. The guards then order that a a bloodhound be brought in. He knows he's done. The bloodhound goes right to the pile of straw, and a rat runs across the floor. The dog chases the rat. The Confederate guards go, damn rats, and they left. So Johnston lived. He makes it out of the tunnel and lives. So um, solitary confinement, Uh, the fence. Uh, Let me get to that. So after uh, days of digging, Rose digs up to the ground. It's at nighttime. Uh, He can feel the cold air come through the hole. He sees the, the, the night sky. He pops his head up and there's a boot right beside him, a Confederate guard. He freezes. The guard hears something and starts jabbing Uh, The hole with his bayonet cuts Rose's face, almost goes in his eye. Um, Rose realizes they came up on the inside side of the fence. So he tells the men, we got to dig some more. Uh, So they do that. Um, The lottery of death. So one of the things Turner came up with was he would get men and have them draw straws. He got to short straw, they would just kill you. So it was a cruel game of Russian roulette, I suppose you could say, a lottery of death, just to uh, scare the. The men, the one of the things that helped the men escape was the South had a, um, the North had a famous spy in Richmond. Uh, no one knew the identity of this spy. She communicated with Ulysses Grant, Benjamin Butler and other top generals. She would feed information to the prisoners. Uh, she helped men to escape. No one knew who the spy was. It turns out it was a woman. Elizabeth Van Lou one of the many heroines of mine from history. She lived right here in Richmond. Her family was from Philadelphia. They were abolitionists. uh, So she abhorred slavery. She never married. She lived in this mansion, which unfortunately up on, what do they call it? Church Street on the Hill. The mansion's since been torn down. It's now a little school there. But um, she lived in probably the biggest home in Richmond. She never married. So everybody said she was crazy. They called her crazy bet. So she played the crazy card to her advantage. She would take... Bowls of food to the prison. She would tell the guards, I'll give you all this freshly made food if you let me give some to the prisoners. The guards were starving, so they said yes. Plus, she was a crazy old lady. Nobody figured her for. In the bottom of her bowls, there was a secret compartment that had directions on how to escape, where her slaves would be. She freed her slaves. She freed slaves, bought them. They lived at her house as free blacks. Uh, she would have them on certain street corners at certain nights. If you escape, this is who you find. They'll bring you to my house. Um, she also uh, would carve out eggs and in the bottom of the eggs, she would put a note Then she put hard boiled eggs on top for the guards and give the rest of the soldiers never notes in it. Uh, General Benjamin Butler sent her a, 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 a coding system, a codex. She wrote in, in lemon juice. If you heat up lemon juice, you can see the words appear. Katie, you work for the Defense Logistics Agency. You guys probably know all these tricks. My kids loved it. When they were little, I'd have them write in lemon juice. They thought it was really cool, then we'd heat it up and they'd see me saying hello or Ola or something. So um, she also used this codex and there's a copy of it in your museum, everybody. They would have uh, numbers on the left and bottom. So if I wrote wrote Hillary a a note saying hi, H-I, maybe H was seven and four. So if you go seven and four up, there's the letter H. Then I'd put the next two numbers, and that would be I. Then I'd put a number that meant a space. So she used the codex to communicate with Union generals. Elizabeth Van Loo saved several of the prisoners. She's the one that got them the information on on where to go when they got out. Here's an artist image of her hiding prisoners upstairs, and that is an actual picture before the house was torn down circa 1901 of the room where she hid prisoners. All right, here's the uh, the, 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 uh, path that they took. I'm a little over time, so let me move it forward. Um, You can see they dug from the cellar uh, 50 to 60 feet to an adjacent little warehouse. From that, they escaped uh, on the night of February 9th. Here's one of the depictions. Uh, I'm not going to go through all the numbered rooms because that'll take forever. But you can see on the bottom right the tunnel uh, that the men used on the night of February 9th. Um, So um, uh, well over 100 men, 109 men escaped. Uh, They followed what is today something I love. It's your uh, Capitol Trail, right? Um, From here to Williamsburg, two of my favorite cities in the U.S. uh, And I've done that. The men followed the river. They followed what is today your trail. So that's uh, that's over a 60-mile walk. Uh, Colonel Rose walks that on a broken ankle. Um, Hamilton, the men escape. 48 are recaptured. Two die. They drowned in the James River. But 59 made it. Constituting the largest prison break in American history. When they were getting out, going out, Rose announced the underground railway to God's country is open. And then Godspeed, and they all went through. Hamilton's one of the first people to make it to Williamsburg. Why Williamsburg? Elizabeth Van Lou crazy bet, told him the North had taken Williamsburg and they were waiting for him there, expecting him. Hamilton, it takes him about a week of running by night hiding by day. He's one of the first to make it. Um Rose, it takes him over a week. He and Hamilton escaped together, but become separated when they walked in the Confederate guards and ran the opposite directions. And They never reunited until after the war. it takes Rose about nine days on a broken ankle. Uh, he's sleeping in hollowed out logs. He's almost naked. It's freezing. It's February. Uh, he's forging, crossing rivers. He's soaking wet. Um, he finally makes it after nine days to an open field. He's in the tree line. He sees Williamsburg. He can smell it hear the noise and see the smoke from the fires, the Union fires. But there's a wide open field. So he spends hours watching the field. He sees no signs of the Confederates. So running low, he's racing across the field. Halfway across the field, Confederate soldiers stand up out of the tall grass. They were there as he's recaptured. Rose fights five Confederate soldiers, beats the hell out of two of them. But as he's taking one of their guns, the other three, load the guns on him. One busts him over the head and knocks him out. Rose is taken back to Libby where he's beaten yet again savagely, beaten on his broken ankle and put in solitary confinement. Somehow he survived and he's freed after the war. Um, So this is the path that the men took. This was the largest manhunt in American history until the one for John Wilkes Booth the following year. Uh, which is otherwise, if it hadn't been for Booth, I think we'd know more about this manhunt. Turner, half the residents of Richmond, there were rewards. Everybody took off with bloodhounds, horseback. They couldn't let the most high-profile prison. And Union generals and colonels escape from under their noses, and yet 109 escaped. Um, so um, after the escape, Elizabeth Van Lu sends word to General Benjamin Butler over by Williamsburg that the men that escaped are going to die. They're being beaten daily. If you don't break them out of the prison and Rose and all the rest will die. So they organize what's called Kill Calvary, uh, named for General Judson Kilpatrick, which is in the top left. Um, he is going to do a lightning cavalry raid. They're going to race into Richmond, hit the prison, race back out. It's organized by the guy in the top right, Ulrich Dahlgren, who has one leg, lost a leg in the war. He's a hero. Um, everything goes wrong. Word leaks. The Confederates are waiting for it. They capture and kill a lot of the folks. They capture Dahlgren beating to death, and they hang him up upside down in Richmond and hang his leg up upside down in Richmond. His leg is, is used as a prop uh, for months and months. Uh, so that doesn't work. So now those in the prison are are, are, are done. The war ends uh, Richmond, the fall of Richmond, April 2nd, as you all probably know, 1865. Abraham Lincoln visits uh, when the Confederates were fleeing Richmond. They said, if we can't have it, no one will have it. And they burned your magnificent city to the ground. So sometimes you hear the Union burned it when they entered it. No, the Confederates, Davis and others ordered it burned as they left. Lincoln tours Richmond. Um, He wants to meet with Confederate leaders, but everybody's gone. Uh, He has two places he wants to meet in Richmond. He goes to the White House of the Confederacy, and he wants to sit in Jefferson Davis's chair. And Lincoln, of course, is 6'4". When he does, he can't resist making jokes about how small Jefferson Davis was. Uh, And he said, I'm too big for this chair, and he'd wink at everybody and laugh. The second place he wants to visit in Richmond is Libby Prison. He goes to Libby. Uh, a crowd gathers and they're screaming, tear it down. And Lincoln gives an impromptu speech, no, we need to preserve this site as a memorial uh, for what happened here so that we learn the lesson of history. Tragically, it it was not preserved. Um, here's the five people I mentioned. The big guy on the, the left, that's Colonel Rose with his beard, uh, the one who came up with the idea, the one who dug most of the trench, the one who organized the crew, organized 109 men, but unfortunately was captured. Rose uh, rejoins the military, and the answer is, but of course he did. Uh, He serves, becomes a general, spent his whole life in uniform, happily lived a long life. Rose is offered money to write his story from the Libby prison. He refuses. Later in life, Hamilton begs him to write his account. Rose writes his account. Hamilton and others say it's ridiculous. It's not accurate. He understates everything. He's so humble prompting Hamilton and others to write a more accurate, more descriptive account. Top left, that's, um, uh, that's uh, Straight, Colonel Abel Straight, the big, burly Dutchman, who was the high-ranking prisoner who was always spit on, part of the zoo tour. Uh, he's so weak, he's so big, he gets stuck in the tunnel. Like Winnie the Pooh, they're pushing him from the back and pulling him from the front. They have to strip him down and rolling this way through the tunnel, like a bullet coming through the barrel. Uh, they get him out of the tunnel. He's too weak. So he meets with one of the former slaves who's working for Crazy Bet. He hides in a room upstairs for two weeks until the manhunt ends. She puts him in a wagon, covers him with produce, and one of the former slaves that now works for her takes him to Williamsburg. He meets with Lincoln, Grant, everybody, and he gives them all the details of what the Confederates are doing and how to hit Richmond. A handsome young guy on the top right, that's uh, Major Hamilton from Kentucky who was Rose's co-digger. They're the two that dug the lion's share of the tunnels. Hamilton lives through the war, moves back to Kentucky. Unfortunately, he faces reprisals uh, and economic ruin because he was pro-union from a lot of Confederate sympathizers in Kentucky. Later in life, he and another veteran are sitting outside of a saloon, just sitting out front having a drink at night. Two young rowdies are drinking. They're both carrying pistols. They come up. They realize who he is, so they shoot and kill him. later in his life. Bottom left, you can see with the one arm, that's uh, Bartleson, the poet, uh, who kept the men alive and gave them hope. He would write a poem for them every day when they came back from digging all night. Bartleson gets out on a prisoner exchange um, and uh, rejoins the military right away. And he's leading his men from the front at the end of the war and is shot and killed in the final days of the war. Bottom right, that's Colonel Cavada from Cuba. And if you walk into your civil war museum, they have a giant picture of him hanging on the wall. And they, and I was there about two years ago. And I said, you know who that is? And they, we have no idea. We just put the the big image up. It was Cavada. After the Cavada lives through the war, he goes to Cuba and becomes the number two ranking general to lead the fight for Cuban independence. Uh, He uses his connections, Grant Butler and all that to get money and weaponry for Cuban independence. So at night he's gonna go to the Northern part of Cuba Board a ship, travel to Philadelphia and return with weaponry and funding. Somebody rats him out. When he goes to get on the ship, the Spanish government captures him. He's tortured for days. All the way up to Ulysses Grant begs the Spanish government for to let him go. They kill him. Uh, a couple of years ago, I led a tour through Cuba. There's a Cavada Street. There's a Cavada Square, a Cavada Hospital. So he's remembered there as the great hero that he is. In closing, um, here's a line from... One of Bartleson's poems. He would end with the chilling call, the guards every hour, all is well. This is one line Ah, is it so, my fellow captive, sleeping where the barred window's strictest watch is keeping, dreaming of home and wife and prattling child, of the sequestered vale, the mountain wild. Tell me when cruel morn shall break again. Wilt thou repeat the sentinel's refrain all is well. This is one of the last poems he wrote for Rose and everybody before they escaped. It survived the war, I'm happy to say. Um, What became of Libby Prison? They tore it down. And in the 1880s, they made it a museum in Chicago. Look at this. Talk about ambitious. Uh, They built the great Libby Prison War Museum. And for a couple of years, it was a big tourist attraction. Then it stopped making money and they closed it. They gave the bricks away. So sadly, there's no mass collection of Libby artifacts. Your museum is a few. Um, you go around the country, there was a small museum in Ohio where there was a brick. There's one brick. Uh, so uh, there was a barn allegedly built in, in Indiana out of bricks. But uh, so it was uh, dismantled and we don't have uh, a large site. Here's the interior with some of the items from Libby Prison. This is from the 1880s. Um, today, if you go down to the Virginia Holocaust Museum, the edge of the canal, there's this one little plaque marker about the size of a license plate. And that's where Libby Prison was. That's just, This is my photograph from one of my many trips to your wonderful city. Um, here's two of the items from your museum. I wanted to put them in there for your museum. There's the bars on the window and the key to Libby Prison. Uh, These would have been from about 1863, because that's when they put bars in the window, 1863. Uh, Lincoln visiting Richmond and uh, near historic Tredegar, everybody. There's this wonderful statue of Lincoln with his youngest son, Taddy. Thomas had a learning disability. Lincoln called him Taddy for Tadpole. Uh, And there they are. And uh, there's a couple paintings of Libby Prison. I'll put them up just to show how inaccurate historical paintings are. All the men are wearing uniforms, looking well-fed and fun. The ceiling's high. No, they were half naked, starving, freezing on the floor, uh, huddled up, uh, five times more crowded than this, not hanging their jackets up and reading. And No, so this is a ridiculously inaccurate image. Um, this one I like better because it's more, I guess, biblical. Uh, it, it, it evokes your mood. The men are not dressed. Some don't have shirts, some have, uh, but the ceiling is too high. And it's not crowded enough. But this is a little bit more accurate in terms of the image of Libby Prison. And I'll end with a shameless plug for my book. Um, it's in your lobby out there. I don't know what, what, how much it is, but um, I heard it's not bad. So um, with that, let me take questions on this or any other topic you may have. Thank you. Thank you. There's the, the debut lecture for uh, Escape. Uh, Sir. What happened to the wardens? Good. What happened to the wardens? Can you all hear me? Yeah. What happened to the wardens? Um, Richard Turner, the big bearded guy who beat everyone, a deputy warden. He's there at the end. They capture him, and guess where they put him in jail at the end of the war? In Libby. In fact, they put him in solitary confinement at the beginning. So he lives through the prison imprisonment at Libby. Thomas Turner went on the run. He meets up with General Jubal Early and other Confederates. They cross the Mississippi, they get to Texas, they go to Mexico. They don't like it there. So they find a ship and they go to England. They don't like it there. They go to Canada. They don't like it there. Eventually, he moves to Tennessee and uh, uses a pseudonym and lives the rest of his life and dies in peace in Tennessee. Uh, Remember Lincoln, with great magnanimity, at the end of the war said, I don't want to see Robert E. Lee in chains. Let him go home. Grant General Joshua Chamberlain, one of my favorite uh, generals of the war because he was a professor. And we all know professors are daring, dashing, and very cool. Um, And uh, Lincoln's son, Robert, all at Appomattox Courthouse, told Lee to take a sidearm his horse and go home. And Robert E. Lee did. And was a president of one of your great colleges. Um, So a lot of these men were let go, uh, which I think was the right thing to do. Lincoln realized it was a battle for the hearts and minds. And he wanted to bring the country whole, make it whole again. His wonderful second inaugural when he, with remarkable humility, announces that both sides drew the sword. We both prayed to the same God. We're both equally guilty. We both drew blood. So um, the Turners in another situation would have been punished horrifically. Uh, uh, Captain uh, worse, the com- the commandant at Andersonville, he was tried and hanged. But one of the few Confederates to be hanged. Uh, but the, all the rest of the folks at Libby, except the deputy warden, they let the guards and everybody else just go home. Erastus Ross, the clerk who did the roll calls and always made mistakes, after the war when they when uh, Crazy Bet gave her letters to Grant, it turned out he was one of her spies. She got him placed in the prison. He was gay and he suffered horrific, as you can imagine. Uh, and he was so he's keeping two bad secrets, uh, two secrets that would have cost him his life uh, circa 1860s. Um, After the war, unfortunately, staying at a hotel in Richmond, it catches fire, and he's burned alive in the fire, uh, along with his letters. So we don't know much more about him except what I just said. But all those roll calls that he screwed up, he would screw them up on purpose, according to Crazy Bet. So he rendered a great service. Ma'am.
0: The situation, between the situation at Andersonville and at Libby Prison with any of the Union prisons holding Confederates.
1: Okay. So Andersonville, Belle Isle, right out here on the river, and Libby were among the most wretched. Andersonville, easily the worst in American history. But no question. The Union prisons were, as a general rule, were significantly better. The union did not run out of food, medicine, blankets, clothing. In fact, one of the things that helped Rose to escape, he was walking through town at one point and a whole group of nighttime drunken revelers walked by him. They were all wearing stolen blue union coats. So everybody had a blue jacket on, uh, so it helped him to blend. Elmira, New York was one of the worst union prisons and a lot of Confederates died in Elmira. Difference, they didn't die of starvation and torture a disease swept through the prison and killed a good percentage of them. Union prisons were no vacation club, uh, but it must be said in all honesty and and, and follow the historical record. The Confederate prisons were significantly worse because they ran out of food, medicine, clothing, and also the the torture, the beatings were much more prominent in Confederate prisons than in Union prisons, not to say they didn't exist. Um, So there's your, your parallel in terms of the conditions at Andersonville I think they were closest to Belle Isle because they were both just open stockades where people just laid on the ground and suffered through the weather. At Libya, at least you had a roof over your head. Uh, So good. Good questions. Ma'am?
0: What prompted you to research this? What prompted me
1: to research this? So um, uh, my sweet spot as an historian is the story that history's missed. I always... Tell my friends that, don't, that already know I'm nerdy that I'm an, hist- I'm an historical detective is what I really am. Um, I like the story behind the story, the story that we missed, the story that's told incorrectly. So I try to write books on, one, stories that, that people have missed. And Libby was such a high-profile prison, was such a compelling... I mean, I, you know that's the truth, but I haven't told you the half of it. I haven't told you the tenth of it. Uh, in the book, I document the details of their escape because the men that escaped wrote down every details of running and dogs following them. And some got caught and some died and some lived. Um, but so I, I I was aghast that this story hasn't been better told and isn't more a part of the textbooks and the popular narrative. It's also the third and final book in a trilogy that I wrote about. I wanted to write about human nature. I'm an historian. So I picked history to tell my I've been really dismayed the last several years at the spike in hate that this country has encountered. The ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the FBI, the Brennan Institute, uh, Trinity College have all been monitoring hate crimes since the 60s, since civil rights. And the numbers have been dropping until five years ago, and they went to record highs. Five years ago, they doubled to four, then doubled again to three. That's crimes toward gay's crimes towards Blacks, towards suspected immigrants, you have an accent, uh, towards Jews. Uh, So it's been just, to me, unconscionable. So the last five years, I've been running to tell the story of what, you know, what's wrong with us? Uh, So I did it through three books about brutal treatment of prisoners and brutal treatment during wars. I wrote one book called The Nazi Titanic about the Holocaust. And the Germans actually built a replica of the Titanic. Hitler called it the Nazi Titanic, that's the name of the book. And they made it a floating prisoner of war and concentration camp at the end of the war. The plan is to blow it up and kill everybody on board at the end of the war. And nobody would remember the Titanic because many, many, many times more people, thousands and thousands, actually did perish on the Nazi Titanic. Uh, They're making it into a TV movie for next summer, 2022. Um, The second book I wrote is called The Ghost Ship of Brooklyn. It's about... Uh, The British had so many Revolutionary War prisoners and New York was the British headquarters for prosecuting the revolution. So they ran out of prison. So they got this massive old haunted ship. They took everything off of it to make it a floating coffin in the bay uh, right by Brooklyn. And they put a couple thousand American prisoners in it. Everyone died from disease and neglect. They even battened down the hatches and and covered up the the portholes. Everyone died and the British got an idea. If we make this so horrific, the Americans won't fight against us, which was the same thing that came from Libya. So in each one of these three books, three different wars, three different, you know, Civil War, Revolution, World War II, maybe our three most important wars. It's stories of what we do to one another, why we fight wars, what we do to our prisoners. So it's a three, 400-page investigation of the human condition without having to write a book about the human condition because nobody wants to read that. And I'm not a psychologist. So I stayed within what I know and that's history. So that's why I wanted to write this book. It's also a good excuse to come to Richmond. Um, You know, I love New York City. I love Richmond. I love Germany. So places I get to go for, you know, my books take me to fun places. So uh, thank you, ma'am. What
0: is your most unusual source of your detective work?
1: My most unusual source of my detective work um, so you'd be surprised how much is written, written down. You know, once upon a time, everybody kept diaries. Everybody wrote everything down. If I, if I, if Biden invited me to the White House for dinner tonight, uh, if this was years ago, I would write to Katie and Hillary and tell her what they served. You know, who would I sit next to the entertainment and how that spoon from the White House got in my jacket pocket, right? <laughs> I'd write everything down. Today, I'd call him on the phone and we're losing all that. So once upon a time, people had time. You didn't have the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. You had nothing to do. So they wrote everything down. Now, the big qualifier in that is we don't have women's history. You know, if an alien came to this planet, they would assume that the female species appeared around 1920 with the 19th Amendment. Because women's, most women were illiterate. If you did have something to write with, and remember parchment or a quill, these were prohibitively rare and exceedingly expensive. Imagine being out West in a sod house, no disposable diapers, no drive through no supermarket. How do you, it, you know, it takes all day to put a meal on the table. And the idea of three meals a day, everybody, only if you were a monarch, people ate three meals a week historically. Um, so, and if, if a woman did have time to write, did write it down, was literate, what man would preserve her writing because of sexism? So we've lost women's stories. Uh, therefore we've lost, I think love letters, poetry, the games children played, recipes, musical scores, the things that I think breathe life into the human condition. So that's a great loss. Uh, so uh, what I do is I contact archivists, for example, with my book, The Ghost Ship. I knew a lot of those revolutionary war prisoners were from coastal communities in Rhode Island and Connecticut. So I contacted archivists and librarians at all the museums and history societies, and I sent them boxes of dark chocolate mac And I told them, here's what I'm looking for. And, you know, here's some dates. And, you know, if there's anything from 1780 from your old newspapers, and if you're nice to someone and you give them dark chocolate mac nuts, you'd be surprised what people would do for dark chocolate mac nuts. I mean, that's my get out of jail free card. So um, lo and behold, I get a call one day from Providence, Rhode Island. And a female librarian says, OMG. She says, "Um, I found... Uh, a 120-page account from a little 13-year-old boy named Christopher Hawkins who was on that ship and, and escaped. And I thought, oh my gosh, Christopher Hawkins in it tells the names of other people that escaped where and when. So I knew what city they were from and when they escaped. So I'd go to those newspapers and sure enough, there would be a, a, a newspaper column that would say something like, we all remember Thomas Dring, who went off to war. Last Tuesday, a naked skeleton stumbled into town. It was Thomas Trent. Hadn't seen him in four years. You know, so lo and behold, my, the best find ever was um, I found a letter from a British major named Till, T-I-L-L, saying at the very end of World War II, May of 1945, he said, I, I saw thousands of people die in the most gruesome way as we were signing a surrender. Now, I know my World War II, so I'm reading, I'm going, that never happened. Thousands of people didn't die. So I contacted the World War II Museum in New Orleans, the Holocaust Museum in Washington, the Imperial War Museum in London. What are they talking about? Everybody said nothing. I called World War II and Holocaust experts, what are they talking? About? Didn't happen. I said, I didn't think so. So I'm doing my research for another book on World War II, And I stumble across the second letter from General Mills Roberts, he was a general in charge of the British Sixth Commando, like a special forces unit, like CL, maybe SEALs or 82nd Airborne. And he wrote that I was on the beach at Lubeck Bay in north central Germany in the southern Baltic watching all these people die. So now I had two letters. So I realized this happened. So what I did was I found out both their units. You know, if you have a relative who fought in World War II you can contact the Pentagon Pentagon or the National Archives, they'll find every battle that they were in. So I followed Mills Roberts unit throughout the entire war. And there's, you know, was he at d day Battle of the Bulge was, he, you know, where was he at? And everything was there until the last couple of days of the war, there was no letter, everything disappeared. Okay, that's odd. So I did the same thing for till. And guess what happened? Same thing. So either this is the world's greatest coincidence, or they were abducted by aliens, and I don't traffic in that. Or this stuff happened, it's probably classified. So and the answer C. So now I had to figure out where it was, where the classified documents were. So long story short, they were in the Royal Archives in London. So I spent weeks calling them, writing to them, emailing them. And my, the calls would go something like this, hi, my name's Robert Watson. I think I found a super important story from World War II and the Holocaust. Thousands died at the end of the war. I think it's, it's in your click. Don't hang up. Um, I I, I think you're sitting on a store. I think it's classified. I need access. We don't give access. It doesn't exist. I said, how would you know it exists? Click. Uh, So I can't get access. I'm lecturing at Normandy on the D-Day landing beaches for the 70th anniversary of D-Day with all these veterans. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in hog heaven. And I meet a woman there who's fascinating and is my age. That is to say a very youthful late 50s. Um, And turns out she's an Academy Award winner. And she made a movie about the Holocaust called Into the Arms of Strangers. And I say, no way, I show that to my students. I love your movie. She's friends with Dame Judy Dench, Maggie Smith. I'm like, oh, they're my favorite actors. Um, so she says, let's have dinner tonight. I said, I hope you don't mind, my family's here. She said, I hope you don't mind, my family's here. So we meet for dinner. I used to do a weekly lecture series in town hall in South Florida for about 1,500 people. There was an older couple named Eric and Gloria Oppenheimer who sat in the front row every week for 15 years. Here she walks in with those two. I go, Eric and Gloria, what the heck are you doing here? They said, we're here for your D-Day tour. I said, man, you gotta get out more socially, right? And then I put one and one together. I'm like, this is your daughter? And I said, Why? how did you not tell me your daughter won the Academy Award? What kind of Jewish mother are you, right? <laughs> and then Debbie looks at me and she's like, you're the guy they go to listen to? So she she says, they like your books. So what are you working on? I told her the story I just told you. She goes, ah, I know Prince Charles. Let me make a phone call. Two days later, the head of the Imperial War Museum and Royal Archives contact me. Debbie called, said you're her bro. What can we do for you? I I wanted to yell and say I spent months calling you. I was going to dress like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible and float down from the ceiling. But I'm twice the size so the rope would break. so I told them what I think they had, where I think it was, and it was on this crazy Titanic, and it was the bloodiest hour of the war. Two days after that, they contacted me. We founded it. We're declassifying it. Eureka, it's yours. Right? I, I thought I was Nicolas Cage, only a better actor, in that those National Treasure movies or something. So it was classified all these years. It's like a movie. So I always share that story with graduate students in history, not that – Every day is in a story and that's what you're gonna do. Usually I sit in the basement of places like this for day after day after day, you know, sneezing because of the dust. Um, But every once in a while, there's something exciting. So keep digging. And I do think that we all, even if it's your grandparents' story, interview them, write it down. If you have papers, just put it in a Ziploc bag, cool and dry. It'll last for forever to keep it out of humidity, sunlight, there's little things we can all do. Put a, turn a camera on and talk to your neighbor who was a Holocaust survivor, a Korean war vet or something. Everybody has a story. And then post it online, digitize it so it's there for forever. Share it with your kids and your grandkids. Um, you'd be surprised at how much is out there when you start digging um, and how much we're still missing to fill in those gaps. So, yeah, cool. Let me take one more and then we'll go sign some books. Okay, two more. Ma'am, and then there's a gentleman over here. Okay. I don't I don't I know the name that's about it Um, but I did find during my research for this book I really fell in love with crazy bet I thought she was a pickle she was a hoot there were times when mobs would surround her porch she even brought her horse inside it lived in the kitchen because they thought they were she thought they were going to poison her favorite horse so the horse lived in the house with her you can imagine the logistics of that um a mob showed up, they were gonna burn the house down. She goes out on the front porch and yells at the mob. She goes, I know Grant, he'll be here in a few days. There's gonna be hell to pay if you touch me or the house. It dispersed the mob. Um, after the war, she had lost everything she had, of course. She was persona non grata in Richmond. So Grant hired her as a postmaster. So she had a salary and a living and happy to say she lived a long life. Uh, she was reunited with many of the men uh, who, um, who died. Um, one of Paul Revere's descendants died, and she hid the body because she was worried that the Confederates would find out and do something to it. She later contacts the family and tells them where the body is so they could reinter it in a better grave. She risks her life for years. So, uh, and I, of course, I just love the story when it's a woman who's doing something as a feminist, when it's a woman who's doing the great thing, and an older woman who all the men thought was crazy, and she duped everybody from Jeff Davis down. Uh, last question, sir. I was wondering
0: um, about after the escape from Libby Prison, what happened to the tunnel?
1: Good. So what happened to the tunnel? Great question. Um, the Confederates, it took them hours and hours, but they found the tunnel. Uh, they were afraid to go in it, figuring it might be rigged you know, to prevent people from finding it. So they sent a young slave boy into the tunnel. He came out on the other side and, was, and literally had pissed himself. Uh, was scared to death. It it took him quite a while before he could tell them what was in the tunnel. Then they went through and found the tunnel. Turner was so angry that he had the tunnel filled in. Uh, He had it sealed on both ends. um, And then he put more explosives underneath the prison, threatening to blow the prison up. So the tunnel, the prison, everything is gone, except there's a couple scattered bricks. There's a couple artifacts out here in your exhibit hall. Um, But, you know, I wish more than that plaque We had something that we could go to and that's why i think this has become an enigma and it's been forgotten from history you know if you go to williamsburg you go to parts of richmond we remember history because you all have done a wonderful job with tredegar and other sites right Uh, but so many sites we've lost Uh, gettysburg is magnificent if anybody's been there i think it's the best battlefield on the planet in terms of its preservation but for every Gettysburg, there's a 100 that have been turned into strip malls and dentist's office and plastic surgery you know, offices. I mean, so we've lost that. So that's quite tragic. Virginia, your state where I used to live, I think you all do a great job in historic preservation. My state now, Florida, is one of the worst in the country for historic preservation. Um, we do a bad job. It's it's just tragic what we lose in Florida all the time. Um So everybody, uh, you have this wonderful treasure, this resource. Thanks for supporting the museum. Thanks for coming out. I'll sit out here if you want to talk. (laughs) Thanks, Ellie. Thanks, Katie.